Heavenly Father, you tell us in your word that unless you build the house, those who labor, labor in vain. That unless you watch over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. As members of your household, we want to honor you with our lives. We believe that you are the builder and that you build and continue to build your church on the blood of your Son through the hands and the feet of your children. I ask, Father, that you would cause us this morning to trust in Christ like we never have. To hear Him speak to us through Your Word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that You would compel us not to turn away. Not to harden our hearts or stop our ears. And prevent ourselves from being blessed. And honoring You. I ask that you would bless our gathering this morning by causing us to put all of our confidence and all of our hope in Christ alone, for He is worthy. Forgive us, Father, for not trusting as we ought. It is not you. It is our rebellious hearts. So we ask that you would soften them this morning. Change them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. Make them malleable that we might hear and, and really be changed, Father. Religion has no power. It only wears us out. But the gospel has the power to not only redeem us, but sanctify us even this day. I'm so thankful, Lord, that you would gather us and that you would minister to us like this. We ask that you would be glorified in our midst. In Christ's name, amen. Hmm. <clears throat> That's a hard song for me to do before I preach. It's right, it stirs my heart, but it makes it hard to talk. <laughs> he is so worthy all the time. He is so trustworthy all the time. It's, uh, it's hard to trust today. It's hard to trust people, it's hard to trust ourselves. You know, not too many years ago, <clears throat> a person's handshake meant something. You could give your word without signing 20 pages of contractual obligation in language you do not understand. So many employers today say that they're in for the long haul, and then 
We find them manufacturing in China. We have couples that take lifelong marriage vows, and then within a year, they're filing for divorce. It's not uncommon for our politicians to freely make statements that we know they cannot keep. And this is no new thing, by the way, my beloved. Woodrow Wilson, in order to win the election in 1916, his slogan was, He kept us out of war. And six months later, we were at war. George H.W. Bush on the campaign trail in 1988 said, Read my lips, no new taxes. In the following year, he raised taxes. Barack Obama promised to close the partisan divide in Washington. But after eight years of a presidency, Washington, and I would argue the nation, was more polarized than ever. Donald Trump ran on the promise to repeal Obamacare and build a wall, neither of which have happened. This is not a partisan issue. This is a people problem. So who can you trust? Who can you follow with your life? The author of Hebrews, after taking the first two chapters to establish Jesus Christ as the royal Son of God, the creator and sustainer God, the eternal King, the suffering servant, the final word, the merciful and, as we will see today, faithful high priest, he's petitioning us this morning to trust Christ, to consider Jesus his teachings, his ministry, his personhood, his promises. And the author says, trust him. Trust him. I want us to do the same this morning as a church. I want us to receive the word this morning as those who are likely being persecuted under Nero in the mid to late 60s and I, and I want us to consider Christ this morning. And in so doing, I pray that we can come to understand that He is, listen, He is perfectly trustworthy. He is the perfectly trustworthy person that we can listen to. We're fools if we don't. And the consequences of not listening to Christ are catastrophic. So I want to call us, as the author of Hebrews called the congregation then, to consider Christ. And I want to do that in four ways this morning. Number one, I want to consider Jesus and tell you what that means. Number two, I want to tell you why we should consider Jesus. Number three, I want to tell you how to consider Jesus. And lastly, and I pray you'll stay awake for that, the consequences if you do not. Considering Jesus, why consider Jesus, how to consider Jesus, and what happens if we don't. What if we harden our hearts this morning and say, I will not trust him? Point number one, consider Jesus. The author begins in chapter 3 by reminding his readers of who they are. Look at verse 1, chapter 3 of Hebrews. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, holy brothers because they've been set apart by the blood of Jesus Christ. Remember, we talked about this last week. Chapter 2, verse 17, Christ, the high priest, was the propitiation 
for their sins. Christ paid the price, making them holy, not by their own effort, but by the blood of Jesus. He says, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, and we looked at that two weeks ago, that you've been created in the image of God, and your destiny in Christ is glory and honor and rule on the throne with Him. And so the author, before he tells us to consider Christ, he says, remember who you are. You're holy by the blood of Jesus. Your end is glory and honor on the throne with Jesus. And then he says, look very closely. He says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Fix your thoughts. Fix your heart. Fix your life on Jesus. Consider Jesus thoroughly. The word in the Greek literally means to think from top to bottom. To concentrate by fixing one's thinking on. To understand fully. To comprehend that you might know and follow. Consider Jesus sounds weak, doesn't it? I'd say it's a bad translation. It's right, but it's not right. You know, someone said, hey, consider going to a Pollo Loco or consider going down the street. You think that's optional. This is not optional. You could translate it like this. Think decisively and have a clear understanding of who Jesus is so you can listen to him and obey him in love. That's what he means by consider. Think decisively and have a clear understanding of who Jesus is so you can listen to him and obey him in love. This is the central imperative for this entire chapter. The Holy Spirit, through this author, is compelling us as he was compelling them to take every thought captive for Christ. Every one. Every single one. I remember when the boys were young, Joshua in particular, (laughs) I'd be talking to them about something important. I'd say, there's a hornet's nest in the backyard. Don't go near it. Don't go into the deep end unless I'm there with you. You may drown. And all the boys, but again, Joshua in particular, I'd be talking and he'd be like this. And then I'd still be talking and he'd turn like this. And so I'd grab his beautiful little chin and I'd turn his face towards mine and I'd hold it until his eyes fixed on mine. And I'd say, Joshua, are you listening? Are you listening? The Holy Spirit of God is taking your precious little chin, and it is precious, and he's saying to you, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He's taking your beautiful little chin, and he's saying, fix your life, fix your heart, fix your mind on the apostle. You say, wait a minute, I thought the apostles came afterwards. This is not the office of the apostle, this is the, capital T, the apostle. The messenger. We started our entire series in chapter 1, verse 2. Remember? In the last days, he has spoken, God has spoken to us by his Son. He is the messenger. The definitive word given by God in Christ, we are to listen to, to fix our heart on. He is our apostle, and it says our high priest. And as we saw last week, he gained that position by suffering and dying on our behalf. 
that he might enter the grave, rise from the grave, ascend into heaven, and now stands before the Father interceding for us. And we need intercession. As sinners before a holy God, we need intercession every moment of every day. And the author is saying, consider this high priest of yours. Concentrate your thoughts. Fully understand the final word of God, Jesus Christ, and the high priest who gave his life that we might live. Consider him. It means minimally that we would, as children of God, daily go to the word that we might hear the apostles speak to us. That his words might become intertwined with our thoughts and our actions. That we cannot separate the apostle and our lives. It certainly means that as our high priest, that we ought not be discouraged when we're struggling with sin. We have a high priest. So when you're struggling with that sin, struggle with it at the cross. Do not try upon your own effort or in your own flesh to do it, to overcome it, to be better. That's religion that fails. You have a high priest. Cry out to him. Seek mercy through him. It also means that as our high priest, we ought to not forget the eternal cost to pay for our sins. That he had to give his life that we might be redeemed. We want to consider Jesus by hearing him, by listening to him, by understanding him, and by obeying him in love with our whole life. And that is the central imperative. The central imperative of this chapter, I would say the book, and you could say maybe the entire Bible. Why should you consider him? Point number two, why consider Jesus? You say, well, you just told me that he's the apostle and he is my high priest. The author doesn't just leave it there. Look at verse two. It says that he, Jesus, is faithful to him who appointed him, and that is the Father. You have compelling reason to listen to Christ, consider Christ, because he's trustworthy. You say, how do I know that he's trustworthy? Well, the, the Father, God the Father, sent Christ on the most unbelievable, unbearable mission ever, and he fulfilled it. The, the mission that the Father sent Christ on was to redeem sinners like us to give his life as a ransom for the many. We don't trust people oftentimes because they're not faithful. We try and then they break our trust. Christ did not, will not, and cannot be unfaithful to God the Father or to his bride. He cannot. If you remember from chapter 1, the author was trying to get us to see that picture of the faithfulness of Christ by comparing him to angels. And we ended chapter 1 and then into chapter 2 concluding that Jesus is superior to angels in every single way. We would say you can't even compare the two. And then he wisely and so beautifully here in chapter 3 begins to say, now let's compare him to Moses. We've talked about angels, but you guys, Jewish Christians, in the first century being persecuted, you guys think highly of Moses. Let's compare Jesus to Moses. And he does that not to demean the office of Moses. In fact, he argues that he was faithful. But he does that to say, listen, if you were going to listen to Moses, you should listen to Christ infinitely more. Look at verse 5. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Verse 6, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Now Moses was unquestionably and probably still considered such one of the greatest, if not the greatest hero of the Jewish people. I mean, he's the inspired author of the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. He is the recipient of the Ten Commandments. The man enjoyed one-on-one dialogue with God for 40 years. God appointed him to lead Israel out of bondage through the desert and to the shores of the Promised Land. In the eyes of the Jews, there was no greater compliment for someone to say, you know, you're like Moses. No greater compliment. In fact, we're told in Numbers chapter 12, God said, my servant Moses, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. So even God the Father says, Moses is a faithful servant of mine to communicate my word. We're told here in verse 5 to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. That's Christ. That's the gospel. Moses testified to Christ. But as faithful as Moses was, Jesus is infinitely more faithful. Look at verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That would have been an amazing statement to hear. More glory than Moses? As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So the author starts off by comparing Jesus to Moses, saying, Moses was faithful, Jesus is faithful. And then he takes the comparison and he turns it to a contrasting dialogue. And he says, yes, Moses is faithful, but Christ is so much more so, and here's why. Look at the verse again. Moses was faithful as a servant in the house of God, and therefore the Israelites should have listened, but they did not. But Jesus, he's not a servant in the house, He's a son over the house of God, deserving of much more glory, much more glory. In the first century, a a faithful servant in the house of a wealthy estate owner had a lot of power. They are respected in honor, but never as much glory as the son who would inherit the estate. For my Downton Abbey fans, you probably know who Carson is. He's that butler in that house that was honored as the highest servant in the house. When he would rise from the table, all the servants would rise. When he would speak, the servants would listen. In fact, he was honored so much in that house that even the royal family would come to Carson for counsel at times. Most people who know the series love Carson. But when compared to the honor of someone like Matthew, Matthew was the son who would inherit the state in the series. There was no comparison. There was no comparison. Matthew received more honor and more power than Carson because he was not a servant in the house. He was son over the house. He was going to inherit it. The author wants us to get this theme of Christ as the son over the house of God, which is the church. And so he develops it a little bit further for us in order to understand that Jesus it deserves more glory than Moses because he's not a servant in the house, he's son over the house. Look at verse 3 again. 
For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. It's a simple analogy. We have a tendency to press that further than we should, and there are other passages you can draw in. But the author's trying to just make a a real simple uh, point here. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how fantastic a house or anything that's built is, the one who builds it, the designer, is worthy of more glory. We had a chance on Friday, some of us, to, to gather here and watch the riot and the dance and water. And we got to, I, if you were here, just be floored by the billions and billions of life forms that God has created and populated the water. And the magnificent detail and the complexity of these, of these creatures. And he was very clear to point out, if you're in awe of these creatures, you ought to be but make sure it leads to your worshiping the Creator. These creatures are fantastic. But more glory, more honor goes to the one who made them. Now this this is an obvious deduction for most cultures, but not the West. Not the Western world. We're so prone. We'll look at the spinner dolphin and we'll marvel We look at fancy homes and exotic cars and skyscrapers and smartphones and we're in awe of the material thing and we don't think about the person or the people who actually made them. They would be worthy of more honor and glory than the thing itself. The thing did not make itself. It did just, one day, here's your car. I remember when I was young going to the top of Sears Tower, Chicago, that's now Willis Tower. It was one of the top three, I think, tallest buildings in the world then, probably isn't now, <clears throat> and I was in awe. We went all the way to the top, and we stood at the window. I remember leaning against the window, looking down. I didn't want to go out too far. Overwhelming. I can tell you, I never once thought about the person who designed it. Never once thought about the people who made it. I was in awe of the structure and not those who designed the structure. You say, well, why is that? Why are Westerners so prone to forget about the creator over creation. Well, Paul made it very clear in Romans chapter 1. That's our sin nature. That's what we do. We gravitate toward the creation and forsake the creator. Listen to the apostle Paul, his rebuke to all mankind. He says, what can be known about God is plain to them. That's us. Because God has, made, God has shown it to them. Then he said this, for his, God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. He's saying any breathing person can look upon creation and know God. And then he said, so they, we are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things and cars and houses and buildings and phones. The builder of the house is worthy of more glory and honor regardless of how magnificent the house is. And therefore, the supreme builder, the one who makes all things is infinitely more worthy of glory and honor than all the things that we see and know. Look at verse 4. Why this is in parenthetic, I do not know. 
It's in the original manuscripts, the extent manuscripts. I think it's probably one of the key aspects of the passage. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And so he levels it all. God is the top. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. You see the point? The author's saying that the Father is the creator of all that is seen and unseen and therefore worthy of infinitely more glory than the visible things. Jesus Christ is the Son, the creator of the house, the church, and therefore is infinitely more glorious as the Son over the house than Moses or Abraham or David or the house itself. Christ is worthy of the glory and honor. Now, the Israelites in the desert, they did not listen to Moses. Moses was a faithful servant in the house of God. He spoke God's true words, and the consequence for them was death. How much more, then, should Christians consider, listen, consider and obey the faithful son over the house of God? How much more should we hear Christ and say yes, amen. As much as you should worship God instead of the creation, you should listen to Christ and follow Him. Sin tempts mankind to turn to created things rather than the Creator. In the desert, the Israelites wanted to turn and go back to Egypt, remember? Moses is speaking the truth. They said, let us go back. At least we had a bed. At least we had food. For the persecuted Christians receiving this letter and the persecution as we looked at last week was very difficult. They were tempted to go back to Moses and the law to seek protection under Judaism instead of remaining faithful to the Son over God's house, their merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. The generation in the desert that refused to listen to Moses, they perished for their lack of faith. Obedience to God. I would argue that any individual or any generation that refuses to listen to God's Son, who is counted worthy of more glory than Moses, will perish too. So we've seen the imperative. I consider Jesus. We've seen the reasoning behind it because Jesus is worthy as a son over the house of God. Number three, I pray you're still with me. I'm going to get a quick little drink here and you're going to take a deep breath. So I want you to focus. <clears throat> All right, you ready for point three? How do we consider Jesus? Here's the imperative. We now know why, but how do we do it? Look at verse six. Verse six, Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, the church. If, listen closely, indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The head over God's house, the church, is Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.22, God the Father placed all things under the Son's feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church. Christ is our head. In Matthew 16, verse 18, as Jesus asked Peter, who do the people say that I am? Peter makes the right confession. He says that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus makes this promise in Matthew 16, 18. I tell you, you are Peter. 
On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus Christ says, I will build my church. And we know from 1 Peter chapter 1 that it would not be built by the feudal ways inherited from the forefathers, all the Old Testament sacrificial system and laws. It would be built, verse 19, 1 Peter, by the precious blood of Christ. He is son over the house, and it is his house because it was his broken body and spilled blood that built it. The house of God is a community of blood-bought brothers and sisters. That's who we are. That's why we just had a chance to sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust in the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's why we sing it. It's his house. We dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name because, look at verse 6 again, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confession and our boasting and our hope. We are members of his house if we trust in him alone. Put your faith, put your trust, put your hope in anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ. And it means this, you're not in the house. You're not part of the church. They can't be on equal footing. You can't say, I trust Jesus and I trust my employer the same. I trust Jesus and I trust my country the same. Jesus must be first and foremost, I would argue, infinitely above all other people or things that you put your trust in. Now, the, the, the author of Hebrews, he's not arguing that our being a part of the household of God is based upon our subjective confidence or our expression of hope. That would be futile. I'm confident on Sunday and not confident on Monday. I have hope on Tuesday and no hope on Wednesday. That's not going to get me very far. The author is arguing that the believer's confidence and the believer's hope is in the objective truth, the absolute reality of who Jesus Christ is, what he did on the cross, and the promises he gives to his church. So we have confidence in truth. We have hope in truth. And therefore he says, now consider this man. Consider him. In other words, now listen closely. You will know that you have considered Jesus properly. And you will know that you're part of the house of God. If, look again at verse 6, if you're holding fast to two things, your confidence and your boasting and hope. Your confidence and your boasting hope. That word to hold fast, again, that, 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 that's better than consider. You think hold fast, not like fast as in speed, but hold fast, hold long, take possession of. Do not let go. Most of you know that phrase from marriage ceremonies. In a biblical marriage, two people stand before God and man and they make a vow. And that vow that came from the English common book of prayer, we still use it. Many do in the Western world today. It's a promise to hold fast. Did you know that when you said that, husbands and wives? To have and to hold. You thought, oh, that was hold. No, it's hold, as in bind together. To have and to hold for better or for worse, for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, until when? Death do us part. 
It's permanent. It's a refusal to let go in any and all circumstances. That's how we're to hold fast here. The author's saying, you know you're in the house. You know you're considering Christ. If you take possession, if you hold on to your confidence and your hope. Now, we hear the word confident today in our cultural moment, and we immediately, or most people think, self-confident. Self-confidence, right? That's what our public educators have concluded the problem with so many young people is today. The problem is they're not confident enough. And so we integrate into our educational system self-esteem programs. I don't think that's the problem. In fact, if anything, I think many of our young people are too self-confident. And they don't see themselves as sinner before a holy God. It's not self-confidence. It's not confidence in your own mind or your own strength or your education or your wealth. We are to lay hold and not let go of the confidence. Now listen, there's lots of debate on what we're to be confident in. But we're talking about Jesus as our high priest. What are we to have confidence in? We're to have confidence in that Jesus is our high priest and therefore has granted us entrance into the throne room of God. That's your confidence. In fact, we're going to come back in chapters 4 and chapter 10. We're going to see the same argument being made. The same word, confidence or boldness. To enter into the presence of a holy God, no longer standing outside, no longer trying to get in or wanting to get in, but being unable. Listen, when Christ died for your sins, you've been washed white as snow. And through his death and resurrection, he has enabled us, sinners saved by grace, to come into the presence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit right now. You have access to God. And not partial access, unfettered, total access into the presence of the creator of the universe. It is such glorious news. Our free entrance because Christ was judged for us. You don't have to slither in. You don't have to sneak in thinking maybe he doesn't see me. Come in boldly. Come in confidently. You've made it through if you're in Christ. When you travel these days, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm afraid I'm never going to make it through TSA. I, you know, as a Christian, you always have that sense of, oh, I'm a sinner. Uh, certainly I'm doing something wrong here. You should probably arrest me. I have no idea why, but you probably should, right? Or that's just me. You got to go through this process, and you take off your shoes, and you take off your belt, and you take everything out of your pockets, and you always forget to leave something in your pocket. In one of my first trips to Louisville, I was pulled aside. They scanned me. They patted me down. It was so much fun. But once you get through the inspection, and you make it to the other side where all the restaurants are and the coffee shops are, and you look back and you think, oh, look at those poor people. They still got to get through, right? They're, they're long line serpentine for a mile and a half. You're free from the screening process. You're on the inside. The believer saved by grace has been cleared by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, once and forever. It'd be like having the consummate pre-check, TSA pre-check, where you just walk in, you know, wheeling guns, walking in, saying, I'm free, here I go. Don't do that. You can't do that. You know what I mean. 
Unlike the airport where if you exit, you got to go back around again. Not with Christ. In Christ, you're in. And that means you can have confidence. The author says, hold fast to the confidence that you can come into the presence of God freely at any time and in any condition for comfort, for nourishment, for joy. Look at verse 6b, the latter part again. We are His house, and indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, we've already looked at the hope in the first two chapters. We've been promised hope that Christ will bring many sons and daughters to glory. Chapter 2, verse 10. That Jesus has already been crowned with glory and honor. Verse, chapter 2, verse 9. And that will, He will inherit. He is the heir of all creation. And that we will inherit salvation with Him. Chapter 1, verse 14. And we will, Romans 8, 17, will be co-heirs with Christ. Ruling with Him. This is your hope. That by becoming a man, that Christ joined himself to us, making us his family, brothers and sisters, in the family of God, with God as our Father. The hope is that the devil will be destroyed as we looked at last week. The hope is that death has been destroyed in Christ and therefore we can live right now with no fear of death. The hope is that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live holy lives right now. That he comes to us when we are tempted that we might live righteously. The hope the believer has in Christ, it's not a wish, it's not a longing, it's not a yearning, it's an objective, again, listen, it's an objective reality that you have in the person of Jesus Christ. Not fully attained yet, but it will be for those who persevere to the end. So the member of God's house, listen, he boasts in, he glories in the person of Jesus Christ and the future that's promised for all who believe. We don't boast in our own goodness. You ought not. We don't boast in our church attendance or our prayer life or our family or our careers or education. We have no hope. Listen, you have no hope of life after death if you boast in anything other than Jesus Christ. Those in the house of God will be singing for all eternity what we had a chance to sing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. We affirm and will affirm for all eternity what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.31, Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. This is how we are to consider Jesus, the builder of the house. You are to come into his presence daily, confidently, boldly. You're to open up your Bibles. You're to enter your prayer closet. You're to gather like this with other believers that we might worship as a church. Not arrogantly, but boldly, because you have a high priest who died for your sins and now intercedes on your behalf. You can enter If you don't know this now, what glorious news for you this morning. You can enter into the presence of God in Christ and not be judged. For the sins you committed this morning, if you are in Christ, you can come into the presence of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit anytime, any place, and not be judged because Christ was judged in your place. 
And that means you can boast in the builder. Right, we're the house, but you can boast in the builder. You can boast in the builder to yourself. That's preaching the gospel to yourself. That's glorifying in Christ yourself. And you can boast of the builder to others. You can tell others about the hope they can have and the confidence they can have to come into the presence of God. Listen, my beloved, if you are in Christ, your destiny is set. And so he's saying, hold on to that. When Christ said from the cross, it is finished, he meant it. Finished. No more sins to be paid for if Christ paid for them for you. Paid for in full. That means the Christians can go through this life. This is going to be a shocking statement for you. Ready? Anxious free. No fear of death. No fear of the coronavirus. No fear in Christ. Remember last week, to live is to Christ, to die is to gain. Your destiny is set. Hold fast to the confidence and hope you have in Christ. When we don't, when we don't remember this, we, when we don't remember that we've been set free by Christ, we enslave ourselves to fear and anxiety. We enslave ourselves to the earthly things. We don't fix our mind on the heavenly things. We become afraid of death and the power of death again. So the imperative is to consider Jesus, the reasons why he is the worthy son. How do we do it? We hold fast to the confidence and the hope that we have in him. I got one more. Can I give it to you? The consequences of not considering him. Again, when we started, I said consider does not mean optional. This is an imperative. If you violate an imperative, there are consequences. What are the consequences of not considering Jesus? Last point. Look at verse 7 with me. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Verse 9, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have, always, they have not known my ways. Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Those are devastating words, my beloved. Those are real people with real families, real marriages, real children. The hardening of their forefathers' hearts during the 40 years in the wilderness would have been, for these Jewish Christians, a very sobering warning. And that's what the author is intending here. The question that was being posed to them in the midst of their persecution and it's the same question that's been posed to Christians throughout the centuries is will you repeat the same mistake that first generation did in the desert? Will we, Cambrian Park Baptist Church, will we repeat the same mistake that first generation made in the desert when they refused to listen to Moses and brought upon themselves the wrath of God? They provoked God to anger. Moses was a faithful messenger. He brought God's word to them. He even spoke of the coming of Christ, and yet the people were told they hardened 
their hearts to his testimony. That hardness caused them to go astray. And in going astray, they refused to know the ways of God. Oh, it would be so nice if we could say, well, that was the Israelites. They are a stiff-necked people. And yet we know that describes us all too well. It describes me perfectly. I'm quick to harden my heart. I'm quick to go astray. And I'm quick to know the ways of God but not live in accordance with them, which means I do not know them. The author of Hebrews, he draws upon, this is from Psalm of David, Psalm 95. And so this tragedy that happened in the desert is put to song, and it was sung by the Israelites. Will we do the same? Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. They wanted to turn back to Moses and the law. Will we do the same? Moses would have been the first one to call these Christians who were considering going back to Judaism on the mat. Any of those Jewish Christians in that time of persecution would have not, not have had a sympathetic ear for Moses. In the Gospel of John, Gospel of John chapter 5, we're told that he, Jesus healed a man who had been crippled, invalid for 38 years. He just so happened to heal him on the Sabbath. And after he healed the man, you remember what he said to me? He said, take up your bed and walk. Well, that made some of the, the religious leaders not so pleased because you weren't supposed to be carrying anything like that on their man-made laws. They applied to God's holy Sabbath. It infuriated the Jews. So much so that we're told that they wanted then to kill Jesus for healing this man and having him carry his bed. Listen to our Lord's response to them. This is from John chapter 5, beginning at verse 39. He said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then he said in verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So the author of Hebrews here he says, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Listen to Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Do not harden your hearts or the end will be the same as that first generation in the desert. Verse 11 again, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest and they did not. That first generation didn't make it across the Jordan. They didn't make it into the promised land. They left Egypt, that was the promise, 40 years in the desert. But because of their constant rebellion and their hardness of hearts and not following the ways of God, God said, you're not coming in. But that wasn't the worst part. That first generation perished forever. They didn't make it into the promised land here on earth. And they didn't make it into the promised land, the eternal Cana, the heavenly place. Because they did not believe. 
the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95 to those who were in the midst of severe persecution. He's warning them, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. He's saying to them, don't turn away from Christ. Don't turn away from the promise of Christ. Hold fast the confidence. Hold fast the hope. Remember who you are, holy saints. I would argue, my beloved, that the warning is even more urgent today. Here, in a very complacent, lukewarm Western church, If Christ were to return in the flesh this day and he were to go to several churches that proclaim his name, what would he see? What would he see in the Western world? Would he find churches full of believers holding fast their confidence and boasting in their hope? People who can't stop talking about Jesus? to their family, to their friends, their co-workers, their neighbors, to themselves? Would he find holy brothers and sisters living as those who share in this heavenly calling? Would he find that here at Cambrian Park Baptist Church? I'm asking. Or would he find instead many who claim the name of Christ but always go astray in their hearts? If Christ were in the flesh to walk around our like-minded, reformed, gospel-centered, expositional churches, would he find believers who know his ways but don't know his ways? They know it here, but they don't know it here because it's not coming out on their hands and their feet. Have not lived according to the gospel have not died to self to live for God and others. Knowing the gospel, but not loving, not sacrificing, and not serving for the sake of the kingdom. The first generation of Israelites under Moses was ignorant. They were not ignorant to the laws of God, but they still refused to listen. How many brothers and sisters do we have in Christ fully aware of the laws of Christ? And refuse to listen. I'm talking simple things. Listen. Christ said gather. When my body gathers. Christ said pray for one another. Daily. Christ said meet. The physical, spiritual and emotional needs. Of your brothers and sisters in the church. Christ said make disciples. Spend time each week with a brother or sister growing them in the faith. Be grown in the faith. These are simple commands, simple laws of Christ. Do we hear them and not know them because we do not live them out? And if so, are we seeking the righteous wrath of God too? The good news is this, my friends, and this is the glorious news, and I'll close. Right now, at this very moment, look at verse 7. The Holy Spirit says, today, that transcends time for us. Today, if you hear his voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
It's still the time of grace. Holding fast to a rebellious heart. Never entering the rest of God does not have to be your end or my end or our end as a church. If you've been listening to this point, and you can honestly say, I have no confidence in my salvation. I have no sure hope in the relationship that I have with Christ and where I will be with Him. Then today, if you hear His voice, turn away from a hardened heart. Turn away from a rebellious heart and turn to Christ. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus as the final word for you. Consider Jesus as your high priest. Consider Jesus as the faithful one to the Father. Consider that he fulfilled the mission to give his life, his body, his blood to pay for your sins. Consider Jesus by asking God to forgive your sinful, rebellious, self-centered heart, and to grant you mercy and grace instead of judgment and condemnation, and then receive that fully. Consider Jesus by taking the forgiveness God offers and the perfect record of Christ instead of yours, and then walk in freedom. Consider Jesus by walking in the love and the joy and the obedience that you were created to know and have as someone created in the image of God. Take hold of the confidence, maybe this day for the first time, that because Christ died for your sins, you can enter into the presence of a holy God and not perish. Take hold of the hope that if Christ said you will reign in glory and honor with Him, that that will be true if you are in Him. Know that Jesus Christ experienced the eternal unrest that we rightly deserve for our sins so that for all who repent and believe can know the eternal rest of God now and forever. If you know Christ or you profess to know Christ, then I pray you would this very morning bring your heart before God and you would consider Jesus by praying what David prayed in Psalm 139. David said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Lead me in the way of every, everlasting. You do not want God saying to you, he is always going astray in his heart. He does not know my ways. You do not want God saying that of you. The life you live in the flesh will display your confidence and hope that you have in the Lord. The life that you live right now, your loving obedience to God, your loving and serving and sacrificing for your brothers and sisters in Christ will reveal whether or not you know God's ways. It will reveal whether or not you're in God's house. This is not sufficient. Owning a Bible is not sufficient. Reading your Bible is not sufficient. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and that saving grace and that saving faith will produce a life of great fruit. And you'll say, oh, I'm in the house. I know I'm in the house. That man, that Jesus man has captured me fully. I'm captive to him. Captive to his love, captive to his power. Do not be fooled with your biblical knowledge. 
Do not be fooled by your water baptism or your Christian verbiage. They will do no good on the day of judgment. Verse 1 again, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider that and then live today and every day by his grace according to that confession. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would forgive us for considering so many other things other than Christ. He is trustworthy. If anything else, Father, bring great conviction on us about that single truth this morning. He is trustworthy. He is our merciful and faithful high priest. We can have confidence even now that he's made a way into your presence. We can lay hold of and not let go of the great hope that we have in Christ. No matter how difficult things get on this side, no matter how dark it may seem in the world or how much our bodies may be falling apart or desperate our minds become, we can hold fast the hope that we have in Christ. He promised to not let one of your little ones go. He promised to bring us all the way in to know the love and the joy of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and the saints forever and ever. Lord, I ask that you would increase our faith this morning as a church. The Cambrian Park Baptist Church would shine brilliantly in the power of the gospel. That we would bathe in it and be bathed by it. And then in so doing, Lord, you would not only sanctify us as a people, making us so holy, so brilliant in the sanctification that we magnify your glory to this community, but then we would go out and we would share the gospel and we would make disciples and we would serve those who are hurting, those who are lost. Cause us this morning, Lord, to consider Jesus above all else, I pray in his name. Amen.